0: Welcome to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media.
1: How we consume it and how it informs our everyday culture.
0: I'm Christian Sager, a writer and a designer.
1: And I'm Charlie Bennett, a librarian and a radio raconteur.
0: Each episode is us trying to understand the entertainment world that we all live in
1: just a little bit better.
0: Today's episode is about I Cut the Big Five from My Life, It Was Hell by Kashmir Hill. This series of Gizmodo articles and videos from 2019 look into how difficult it actually is to stop using Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Microsoft.
1: The stacks!
0: We place Hill's research within our larger understanding of the stacks and media literacy, while listening to arguments
1: for and against tech regulation, or simply scaling back. You can visit us at Patreon.com/supercontext, undoubtedly using two or three of the stacks to get there. You can find our show notes, leave a comment on the episode, or go ahead and send us an email to oh god podcast at gmail.com. Can any of us? ever detach from all the tech.
0: Charlie, a couple uh, months ago, I was looking to buy a new bed frame. And so...
1: Uh, Did you fuck the other one out? What happened?
0: Look, it was like 15 years old. It was just shattered. And it was from Ikea, you know? One of the things (laughs) that I've learned that I'm like... (laughs) Uh, as I'm getting older is like, Ikea is fine, but it doesn't have longevity to it. Like that stuff is not built to last. All the particle board had been shredded and ripped away and had holes in it.
1: Then you buy all your Mm -hmm. Ikea stuff you make it through your thirties. Maybe then you look back and say, what the hell was this all about?
0: Exactly. And so we were like this, we had moved for probably like the seventh or eighth time while having this bed frame and it just, it was dead. There was no way it was going to hold up a mattress. So we were like, well, we could go get another Ikea one or we could be adults <laughs> and go and invest money in a bed frame, which seems crazy to us. Uh, so we're going around to these different furniture stores and we go to this one and both my wife and I were like, oh, wow, like it's like they made a furniture store for us. Like we've never felt like this before. Everything in here kind of feels like us and Uh, this is nice. Like we can, we've found our brand and like we can, we can kind of figure out Are you telling me about a dream you had. So, uh, we didn't buy the bed frame right away though. They were like, Hey, um, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There is like a sale coming up in two weeks in which this frame will be like $400 cheaper. Uh, wait until then. And then just like put our name into it and it'll, it'll work out. So we were like, cool. We went home and we're thinking about this bed frame and thinking about, well, this is a nice little furniture store that that we could go to in the future when our other Ikea shit breaks down. And uh, the next day I was looking at Instagram and I got a sponsored ad on Instagram for the furniture store that I was in the day before. And I was like, that's weird because at no point, I'm not the one who did any of the like online research about bed frames. My wife did. So there's no point in which I was typing in bed frames into Google or anywhere on my phone. It's not part of my, my search history. Uh, I wasn't looking at their sites or social media pages or anything, but I was physically at one and somehow it, I, at first I was like, this can't be a coincidence and then the second thing I thought was like, well, how are they doing this? Like, is the microphone on my phone on? And they're literally like, oh, he just walked into whatever Home Depot, and now we'll just start sending Home Depot ads, right? Yeah.
1: So I just taught a podcasting class, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the group discussion moments was someone said, oh, I want to do um, I want to do a five minute podcast on how your phone's not actually listening to you. That it just seems that way. And the class revolted (laughs) against this person. Yeah. Like everyone was like, what are you talking about? My phone is listening to me. I said, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hands up if you think your phone is listening to you. Everyone raised their hand except the guy in the back. It's like, okay, why isn't your phone listening to you? He said, and then he said a bunch of words that I don't retain. Yeah. Because he was was a tech guy. yeah, it was business talk, and he's a management major, and he wants to do a startup, and... Blah, blah, blah. Your phone's not listening to you. The market will sort it out. It was It was not quite that. It was more, um, your phone's not listening to you. It's a complicated set of things that happen. Okay. That makes it seem like your phone's listening to you. All right. Uh,
0: this is a huge aside, okay? Okay. Uh, your phones are definitely listening to you. <laughs> I, I know a guy who works for a company... And his whole job is to go through the audio files that iPhones, or I don't know if it's iPhones, but phones, pick up, uh, in order to better refine their algorithm for figuring out what they're saying and how to target
1: stuff. They are totally listening to you. So let me ask you something: Is is that because um, it's the things that are recorded when someone says "Hey Siri" or "It is exactly I that"? No, it's it's yeah.
0: because of the voice assistant. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I I don't want to have this religious conversation (laughs) because that's what it is. Well, let
0: me finish my Instagram tale then. Yeah. So it's been a couple months since uh, we bought that bed frame and we went to that store and I had that experience. And that experience has happened a couple more times where I've I've been as a person who does marketing for a, a job. I've been really impressed at how good Instagram is at targeting me. Like it genuinely knows the things that I'm interested in and sends me ads for things that I'm like, maybe I do want to buy that. Is this a little confirmation bias? Aren't there some ads that are no good? Sure. But it's far better than uh, the ads I get on Facebook or Twitter or Google is my point. So an article pops up in my feed last week and it has given me the answer, Charlie, as to what's going on. And it is not that my phone is listening to me. Oh. There is something twist. even more insidious going on. Uh, so when you go into businesses that have free Wi-Fi <laughs> and your phone connects to their free Wi-Fi. This is what that guy was saying. Yeah. This is what he said. Yeah, it also picks up like basically like your thumb your fingerprint, your digital fingerprint. Yeah. And says, hey, whatever store you're in right now can send advertising targeted information to you because you've walked into the store. And by the very act of using their free Wi-Fi, sometimes which you don't even know you've done. because if There's a
1: term of service, right? Somewhere buried in the whole thing. Well, like, if your phone like is set to you automatically connect, connect
0: yeah. you don't even know. So, yeah. So, I think what happened was I walked into that store. They had free Wi-Fi. My phone connected to their free Wi-Fi and subsequently they were able to basically like find me on social media and send an ad my way to remind me, Hey, buy the thing that you came in here to look at. Uh, and it's apparently kosher as of right now to do that.
1: I have a much shorter version of that. Um, I have a fake Facebook account because I still have to maintain a couple of Uh, radio show, Facebook pages. Mm -hmm. I've deleted my personal account completely, but I have a fake account and that fake account keeps getting friends recommended to it. That are my friends. It is, (laughs) you know, there's no, like my wife is in the recommended friends more often than not.
0: Well, that's probably because my guess for that is that you have to be the administrator for the page that you're administrating and your yes. wife likes that page. And therefore it's saying you should
1: connect with this person. She also likes the radio show. Probably. But I think also she uses the computers that I use. Oh, sure. Yeah. And the wifi, you know, and like location stuff. Mm-hmm. But then also it's like my buddies are in there, you know, like mm. I have friends in that list that just pop up. Like people I haven't talked to in a long time mm. are being suggested to, An anonymous Facebook account that I only use to keep track of the Purkenji shift, Joe Gideon, and the pages I administrate. So clearly, they've got it. They know more. They have a system in place. Yeah. And so this could be you and
0: I talking for the next two hours about our conspiracy theories, about how it's all working, right? Whether it's the microphone or the Wi-Fi connecting or whatever, like
1: something is going on. Yeah, but that ignores the actual outcome. Yeah, you don't have to even worry about the conspiracy theory. <laughs> you just have to recognize, oh, this is what's going on, and then we try to do things like, and we, by we, I mean me. I delete my Facebook account. I delete my mm-hmm. Instagram. I reduce my um, use of Twitter. I, you know, try and undo the uh, the feed. I, I'm doing all this stuff as if that were going to solve the core problem of the tracking of the surveillance.
0: Yeah. And I think that's going to be a key part to this episode is talking about, it's not the surveillance. It's the way in which we're approaching the content that we're getting that the surveillance is attached to and the market around it. Um, So uh, let's put a flag down. This is a unusual episode for us because it's not necessarily about like one particular piece of content. Um, Although we will be consulting a series of articles that were on Gizmodo in 2019. um, This is more like our episode on Yahoo screen or what happened to Gawker or what happened to Paste magazine. And it is addressing something that is a long running topic on the show that you and I have been talking about probably since the beginning, which we now refer to as the stacks. Thanks to Bruce, Uncle Bruce. (laughs) <laughs> Sterling and um, it's a thing that I think you and I try to think about in relation to the media that we consume. And I think in terms of the mission of super context as a show, you have to think critically about how you're engaging with the stacks because of how, because of how they infiltrate your lives in many ways that are beyond
1: just consuming content. Yes. So much of how we find out about what we want to enjoy comes from this, I don't even know if it's an infrastructure, from this superstructure created by giant tech companies that have um, become foundational pieces of our daily culture.
0: Yeah, and I think we should also cop to right up front that like, you and I are not uh, digital vegans, and uh, we're, we're not, like, these ascetic monks who are just, like, completely purged of this stuff. This show uh, wouldn't be possible without at least three or four of the stacks, I think, like... Well, let's see. I'm looking right now at a
1: Skype window. hmm So, that's Microsoft. A Goog- yeah. A Google Doc on an Apple computer. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and I keep saying the word Facebook, so my phone's probably paying attention to that. (laughs) Uh,
0: We do not have a Facebook page for this show, though we did have a long debate about whether we should or should not, and we ultimately decided not to. We do have an Instagram page for this show, though, which is owned by Facebook, so there's Facebook. Um, I use Google for everything, not just for the docs, but, like, Google's my music service, et cetera. Uh, Amazon is where I buy most of the artifacts that we. That's right. We research. provide
1: Amazon links for people to click on and mm-hmm. try and you know scrape a little bit off the right. Transaction. We get a
0: cup of coffee off of Amazon like once a month. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Fancy coffee. Fancy oh, is coffee. it good? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Um. So all of that is to say, like, we're just as embedded in this as everybody else is. Please don't take this episode as like us proselytizing. <laughs> like you're doing it wrong. Right.
1: And if there's ever a moment when one of us is uh, really getting up on a high horse, know that uh, we understand that the horse is made of wood and is (laughs) about to fall over. So this episode
0: is about a series of articles called I Cut the Big Five from My Life. It was hell written by a journalist named Kashmir Hill. And Kashmir wrote five articles, one on each of the stacks and how she went a week without using each one. And we should say, the big five, the stacks,
1: are GAFM, right? Oh, is that... There's an acronym now? I mean, there's all kinds. Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, she went a week
0: without each of those. And then the last week, she tried to live without all five of them. And it's pretty interesting uh, what she learned. So, we're going to both dive in and out of the sort of media literacy aspects of these articles that uh, Miss Hill wrote. And then we're going to take a look at the sort of zoom out at the broader picture, uh, both in terms of how some people reacted to her article, uh, how many people paid attention to her article. I should also say this is a series of videos as well. They did it uh, mm-hmm. as embedded video as well. Um, and... Uh, most interestingly, how this is, in some ways, a sequel to our What Happened to Gawker episode, because this <laughs> right. is this was produced and paid for by the remnants of Gawker.
1: Yeah. These episodes of Super Context, the Bruce Sterling episode, the Gawker, Paste Magazine, uh, Yahoo Screen, they're almost like um, uh, rough drafts of a different podcast that we could have done.
0: They are, and what's interesting about uh, those episodes is we've had mixed uh, response to them. Some people have been like, "Don't ever do that again." I, I don't want to hear had that. Mixed response. We've yeah. had
1: people who have said, "Those suck. Don't do them," and then no one else says anything. No, about
0: that's them. not true. We've received a couple of messages from people who say, "Why don't you do more of those? I really? want more of them." Yeah, and so here we are towards the end, and we're going to do For one f- one last one. For those two people. <laughs> yeah, for those two people. We'll look at our downloads next week and it'll be <laughs> two. <laughs> so let's pick up with this by talking about uh, the larger piece that Hill did in retrospect of how it was written about in The Guardian by a reporter named John Naughton. Naughton basically described what, what we mentioned to you about you know the, the project itself, but he also pointed out uh, really important aspect here. Uh, Hill had a collaborator, a guy named Drov Maratra, and he created a special private network for her uh, that basically set it up so that not only could... She wasn't just boycotting these companies, but her devices could not
1: access platforms that these companies used. Yeah, so this is what knocks the whole project up to, like a different level than um, the digital detox or I I tried not to use Facebook for a week or anything like that. Yeah. She tried to um, create inconveniences for herself that she could not anticipate, you know, data packets that were headed toward um, instances of any of the five stacks or uh, each of the five stacks one week at a time would be stopped. And sometimes she didn't know that it was going to happen until it did.
0: Yeah. Right. I think like the, the big example for her was her husband and her had rented an Airbnb. Um, and she was supposed to use her phone as a way to get into the apartment. There was like a lock that was set up to sync with the Airbnb app. And she couldn't use it because the Airbnb app is hosted by Amazon's web servers. Yeah. And she didn't realize until she physically got there and like couldn't
1: get into this apartment that she had rented. Here's from Hill herself. Uh, if you're critical of these companies, when you say they're too powerful or they're too privacy invasive, people often will say, oh, well, if you don't like Facebook, don't use its products. If you don't like Google, just get off Gmail and so i wanted to explore that argument and find out if it's possible not to use the company if you don't like it and i found out that it's not possible to avoid them with the exception of apple
0: so let's let's do a real quick uh, subjective host count here charlie uh, for the five stacks
1: are there any that you're completely off of uh, no i'm not i'm not off anything hmm. i am I am enmeshed in all of them, my work and my hobbies and my home space and my personal devices. And I've got everything covered. I think I'm in the
0: same boat, you know, as, as, as much as I'd like to say that I, you know, I've somehow figured out how to live without them. I haven't, um, there are clearly ways in doing this episode is making me think a little bit more critically about how I approach my interactions with these things. Uh, much like you, like I pretty much don't interact with Facebook at all. Um, I only use it for work. The only reason I have an account still is so that I can get into the work pages just like you were talking about. Um, I will like maybe once every six months post something and it's usually just a link to my newsletter. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, have, I, I'm using an Apple computer right now, right? I use Google <laughs> for all of my software. I have a Microsoft entertainment center that I consume all of my media through. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in it.
1: And so I guess what we're saying now is listener. We hope that you are doing a quick check of your own. Like, am I enmeshed in any, all or none of the stacks?
0: And I think one of the things that you'll find either listening to this episode or reading Hills articles is that, uh, which I just noticed I have a typo and, and her name is Kashmir kill in our notes <laughs> yeah,
1: just in a few places, but it's awesome. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah. Apparently she says this herself. She was named after the Led Zeppelin song. Um, no, yeah, that's uh, something she says in, in her profiles. So, okay. Uh, anyways, let's talk, let's start by talking about her. So, Hill is a technology reporter and she's a journalist. She's currently working for the New York times, which I think we'll come back to later. Uh, her social media profile refers to her as being a privacy pragmatist.
1: Yeah. She worked for, um, Gizmodo media group, uh, as, and as a writer and editor at fusion Forbes above the law. Uh, she's also been published in the New Yorker and the Washington post She gave a TED talk. She is, um, I believe she's what you would call a real journalist. Uh, She went to Duke University and New York University where she studied journalism.
0: Yeah, my impression of Hill is that she is, uh, for lack of a better term, but kind of ironic given what we're going to talk about, an influencer when it comes to talking about tech, social
1: media, and privacy. She has a personality that exists in her reportage.
0: Yeah. Um, at the time that these articles came out, Hill had been covering this beat for over 10 years. So since 2009. And I think she's been a reporter much longer
1: than that. Yeah. Because before she was a tech reporter, she was actually a legal, um, blogger. She, above the law was a legal blog. And she, uh, she had a background in law. She got interested in privacy. She says, because of law, law and privacy, you know, like contracts and how people can, how people can in court enforce their own privacy. But then that, uh, as she says, backed her into technology because she was quote, writing about how our privacy was changing in the modern world. And it forced me, her to start writing about cookies and tracking and all these new technologies that were being developed to track us. I, I find that, I find that very interesting. I think there's some folks who say either as journalists or just as people in the world that I I don't want to think about the technology. It's too much. I don't want to learn anything new. Mm -hmm. You know, I, it's also, I don't want to be distracted from the thing that I'm actually thinking about. I, Whereas yeah. she recognized, Oh, I am now in a landscape that requires, uh, my knowledge of this technology. Let me step out and share a little anecdote with you. Um,
0: that, that maybe, I don't know, can provide some context for both of us. So when I was still working at an academic library, uh, because I was the creative and marketing guy, I managed the social media accounts. um, And there were several librarians at my institution, as I imagine at your institution, who are very engaged with technology, social media, and how it's affecting libraries and privacy. Um, There were also some librarians who were, you would assume by me telling you this, that they were much older than us. They were not. (laughs) They were the same age as us. They were in their 30s or 40s. Uh, who disdainfully looked down on us for caring about such things, that they were right. outside of the purview of the library and really shouldn't have anything to, to do with it. And we're, it was just kind of in general, like, eh, this is a pain in the ass. Why do I have to learn about Twitter? I'm a librarian, right? I went to library school. Um, there were other people, again, the same age as us, who were sort of coming around to it and were like, Hey, do you know what Tumblr is? And we would go, (laughs) yeah. And they would be like, this is pretty amazing, right? You know? And um, so I think it's really easy to assume that everybody is thinking about the way they interact with these social media services the same way maybe you and I are or Cashmere Hill are. But I, I really don't think that's true from personal experience.
1: Yeah. So something about Hill... Her attitude towards technology, she points out that she didn't become a tech reporter because she was interested in technology and wanted to cover what was happening and what was cool. Yeah. She became interested in technology because it turned out that it was um, a critical part of the larger issues that she was dealing with. She describes herself as negative from the beginning, Mm. even if people are starting to be more negative about technology now.
0: Yeah, yeah. From my experience working in digital media, I I get the impression that there are a lot of tech writers out there who, like many, quote, journalists, get press releases from companies and are just happy to put that information out there. Like, oh, there's a new Samsung phone, or, oh, Facebook is going to have this new feature, or whatever, right? Like, they're far less interested in thinking critically about how these services or hardware interact with our lives and
1: society. Yeah. I always think about when the gravitational waves press release came out from Georgia tech, Mm -hmm. you know, we've finally been able to image gravitational waves for the first time. Mm -hmm. And several people said, this is amazing. This is, I mean, it's so amazing what's happening. And I, I said about myself, not about people. I said, why is this important? It sounds very cool but I have no understanding of why it's important or useful or good. And one of the engineering professors that I said that to said, it's just never been done before. Mm-hmm. It's like, ah, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, that it, it was a very clear sort of uh, allegory oh, or the way. Some people respond to yeah. news from fields that they don't know anything about.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's triggering for me, actually, because I I was covering the science beat at a digital media company when your university made that announcement. And I remember having to write the story about it f- and being like, I don't understand why this is important. Like yeah. the people who are doing this, clearly it's important to them. But in the information that they're providing to us to relay to the public, they have not explained why what the hook is like yeah, wh- and i
1: I believe that you are with me in that I am not uh, disbelieving that it's important. Exactly. I'm skeptical of its importance. yeah, I am um skeptical of the uh, the scientist's ability to explain why it's important that in it, a way that yeah. can make it important to me.
0: Yeah, we have a a real problem with communication in fields like that in terms of. You know, speaking on a lay level that that makes us all not only interested in these great discoveries, but understand how they impact our lives. Yeah. Okay. we're getting we are definitely on our high horses at this point.
1: Now, let's turn to someone who can tell these stories about the stacks in a way that can make everybody understand why they have to pay attention. Um, I I don't really enjoy Bruce Sterling's fiction. I, I'm, it's not a thing that I connect with, mm-hmm. but I fucking love Bruce Sterling's futurist writings and his tech writings. Yeah, he's great. So, uh, as we
0: mentioned earlier, we've done an episode about him, uh, specifically about one of his addresses at South by Southwest. God, it must have been three years ago now, right? Um, but basically... That is where we've gotten the terminology, the stacks. He has coined this term. I pulled a couple of notes from that episode just for us to refresh our memory and to let you all know why we keep using the term the stacks. Although uh, some of our listeners will know that the stacks is, uh, I believe, one of the bingo uh, uh, slots on the Super Context bingo card.
1: And confusingly, also the stacks are what we often call the shelves in a library. (laughs) Right, That's true, too.
0: So, okay, so the reason why he calls them the stacks is as such Uh, in one of his South by Southwest presentations, he was joking about how uh, and this is right around 2016, about how we are all feeling like our governments, our country's governments, as he refers to them, failed states are putting us in total chaos. Um, And he says people are too busy with their screens right now to riot over the problems that are going on in their countries. Uh, he reminded everybody at that point, he said, look, there's 60 million refugees in the world who don't have a state to call home. All of them have access to Facebook.
1: That's right. He said that those five companies are not just corporations. They have economies larger than many countries, and they have the power, uh, a power greater than many nation states. Yeah. So
0: he refers to them as the stacks because he says, look, these are, these are like beyond corporations. We can't just call them corporations because exactly what Charlie just pointed out, like they are, they have so much power and their economies are so large. We haven't experienced anything like this before. Um, And I'll just note like another running super context theme. I'm I'm sort of tallying them up the closer we get to the end of the show is that we constantly end up talking about five corporations we're always talking about five different corporations. If we're talking about book publishing, there's five corporations that dominate that market. If we're talking about, uh, movies and television, there's five corporations there. There are five corporations that dominate the tech market. And that's what the stacks are. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next five years, there's five corporations that dominate the podcasting market.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, Spotify it's on, is on its way. Mm -hmm. Spotify Um, for sure. Yeah. So here's a thing that Sterling also wants to point out. The stacks have to be considered on the level of nations because of their ability to survey uh, citizenry, both their own and others. And the fact that they are using power not to explicitly make the world a better place, but to make their position better in the world, mm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then their actions are so big that they are changing the world.
0: So uh, let me see if I can tie this to a real world example. Uh, as we're recording this, we're like a week after the Iowa caucus here in the United States for the Democratic primary. And I haven't read in depth about this, but my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Charlie and or listeners, is that the company that was managing the technology For the Iowa caucus that that basically failed it so terribly it took days for them to figure out who won uh, was run by former Clinton staffers that basically like they left government and they said, let's go start a tech company and we'll be the tech company that provides services to these to things like primaries or caucuses. Right. We understand politics. Let us serve politics. So this is kind of along the lines of what Sterling's talking about, is that you get this overlap of players between regulatory or governmental services and tech companies.
1: Yeah. Uh, We should also mention Shoshana Zuboff. Mm. Uh, She wrote the book Master or Slave, the Fight for the Soul of Our Information Civilization, and more recently, Surveillance Capitalism, Mm -hmm. which is something that Sterling says, hey, the stacks are the horsemen. Right, for the apocalypse where a society is dominated by surveillance, it won't be pestilence, it won't be a war, it won't be famine, it will be surveillance which will transform behavior and not in not in an immediately good way, as he says, uh, the most uh, surveilled area on earth, this was in 2016 is Afghanistan. Hmm. How stable is that area mm-hmm. for all the surveillance um, anyway. The destabilizing nature of the stacks, if you want to be very glib about it, comes from them being as powerful as countries on the globe and yet nowhere near as limited or regulated as countries are.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I feel like we've done, we've spent a good amount of time here just setting up to get us into Hill's, the real meat and potatoes of her research. So, we've talked about what the stacks are. We've talked about her process and who she is. Let's go through the stacks one by one and talk about her experience and what she found. So, yeah, we'll start so with Amazon. E-
1: yeah, and each week for five weeks, she knocked out one of the big five and then, like, concentrated on what were the effects of that particular one. So, we'll, we'll talk about each of those. First, Amazon You might not have heard of Amazon, but they're an internet seller. They sell the internet? Yeah. They do, actually. Uh, (laughs) So, if you look them up in, say, business journals, um, they uh, control about 50% of the online commerce marketplace. Meaning, 50% of the money that is spent online is spent at Amazon in some way.
0: That's wild. Like uh, in some ways that both makes total sense and is insane
1: when I hear it out loud. (laughs) Uh, Hill says Amazon Web Services is really what you have to deal with if you're talking about removing Amazon from your life. She says Amazon Web Service is the Internet's largest cloud provider generating over $17 billion in revenue last year, which would have been 2018. Though Amazon makes much more in gross sales, over $100 billion, from its retail business, if you scrutinize its earning reports, you'll see that the majority of its profits come from AWS. So let's spell out what this means. Like They are providing
0: server hosting for websites and other e-commerce businesses. I think the most egregious one that we spoke about recently on the show was uh, somebody who runs the National Enquirer said something nasty about Jeff Bezos. And they only realized after they said it that the entire National Enquirer web presence is hosted (laughs) by Amazon.
1: Yeah. And it's not just a computer that Amazon owns and you can use space on. They have a whole set of services that help. Online businesses, publications, online presences um, exist in the world, deliver their content faster, uh, deliver their content in better ways. They have like secondary services. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is called a content delivery network, CDN, which on its the surface is just to load web pages faster. Yeah. But then if you think about what does that mean it's doing? Is it making copies of things? Is it anticipating clicks you know it's it's a much more um i want to say insidious but it's more like just a much more invasive i don't know i'm trying not to use words like that because they seem a little a little overblown but uh ubiquitous it's a much more ubiquitous service than you might think so, so yeah, so AWS, according to Hill was
0: like the really big surprise. Like it seems like you could just say, oh yeah, I'll buy things locally. I won't order them online anymore, but you run into this thing such as her Airbnb experience or other experiences where you literally, if you're, if you're not using their services at all, you can't access a huge chunk of the internet. Um, we should also mention that Amazon also owns Whole Foods, the Washington Post, Twitch and provide shipping for other companies through their fulfillment services. So you can order from another company, but when the thing comes to you, it may come from an Amazon distribution center.
1: Yeah. And that's the same as the internet services. Some stuff is not even marked as Amazon, right. but is run through uh, you know, a digital warehouse. Uh, Hill lays it out like this. Amazon runs its own uh, content delivery network called CloudFront, which has competition from a company called Fastly, also CloudFlare, uh, Akame, which Airbnb uses. If a website uses Amazon Web Services in combination with a non-Amazon content delivery network, her blocker saw the IP address used by the content delivery network and let the Amazon content through. She also realized that the site that she works for, that she wrote these articles for, was
0: hosted by AWS as well. If you were truly cutting all of these five stacks out of your life, you wouldn't be able to read the articles about them that were on this site.
1: (laughs) And you can't figure out what's going to happen just by your own uh, personal experience of the web, because there are layers that keep you away from... Amazon Web Services as a provider. Yeah. So Hill
0: talks about uh, an academic article specifically about Amazon and trade and regulation uh, that is written by someone...
1: Antitrust, Chris. Say it out loud.
0: I always think of that that movie that came out in the late 90s with uh, Ryan uh, Philippe. And uh, he was like, working for an evil Microsoft company. It's called antitrust. Do you remember this? Uh, No. Yeah. (laughs) That's whenever I hear the real term antitrust, I think of this shitty movie.
1: I remember Microsoft being, you know, sued for
0: antitrust activities, which we're going to get into. Yeah. So, uh, Lena Khan wrote this academic article and is somebody that Hill, uh, used as a consultant when she was putting this together, she's now a legal fellow for the federal trade commission And she argues that Amazon is actually breaking the spirit of the antitrust law, but regulators have failed to act because the law has evolved in such a way that it it ignores monopolies if
1: those monopolies result in actual low costs to consumers. Well, now, immediate low costs. Yes. So here's the distinction. If essentially a monopoly begins to form, but consumers get immediate benefit by that merging or that monopolistic, uh, activity, mm. then that somehow, uh, clears a bar. Consumers are not being hurt by this action. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, uh, some companies did some monopoly bullshit and suddenly prices all jumped, then these laws would be like, Oh, ho, 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 shenanigans, quit it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the other way it's like, no, no, it's cool. See, look, everybody wins. If prices go down, if costs go down to consumers and which is pretty much, I mean, when it boils down to
0: it, that's the argument that I think most of us make inside our, our own head, right? Like you and I are voracious book readers, but I buy almost all my books from Amazon. Uh, it's only now that I live in Portland and have like really good independent bookstores nearby yeah. me that I go to them, but like, but you I would, have to m-
1: talk yourself into it.
0: Yeah. And uh, because essentially what I have to say to myself is, okay, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to spend more money than I would spend on Amazon. And I have to deal with the hassle of physically leaving my
1: house. Yeah. But Bacan lists out the problems that are hidden behind lower prices. Uh, Amazon exploits workers, data mines Americans, and is able to kill off competitors, i.e. they're able to buy companies that are competing with them under the auspices of merging and thus providing that service faster. Mm, mm -hmm.
0: Hey, do you, uh, because I've been gone from Atlanta for a while, does Atlanta have Amazon delivery trucks now? Oh shit. Yeah. Cause uh, I, I was wondering if maybe it's just cause I'm in the Pacific Northwest and I'm so close to their base, but like, we get stuff delivered to us from Amazon, not through the post office or FedEx anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: oh, Christmas made it, it come clear. come on a Sunday. Yeah. Christmas made it clear that the vans are here. Okay. Um, now, we should let Amazon have its say, too. I'm going to just read this. There is an important difference between horizontal breadth and vertical depth. We, Amazon, operate in a diverse range of businesses, from retail and entertainment to consumer electronics and technology services, and we have intense and well-established competition in each of these areas. Retail is our largest business, and we represent less than 1% of global retail and around 4% of U.S. retail.
0: Okay. So that's a very logical, legally framed argument. Um, You know what else I use Amazon for? I didn't even realize it. That's how I distribute my short stories electronically.
1: Oh, yeah, some Kindle stuff, right? Yeah,
0: and my comics, because they own Comixology. All of my comics, if you buy them digitally, you're you're giving money to Amazon.
1: So let's give Hill the final say on Amazon. I knew Amazon Web Services was big. I didn't realize how big it was, and I found that a lot of people reading the story that she wrote didn't know about Amazon Web Services. It's invisible to you as you're navigating the web. I've had a lot of people I talked to during the series compare it to the environmental movement or the food movement, the slow food movement and being digital vegans who are really careful about where their data comes from. But I think most people are just using the internet, not thinking about where the data is coming from.
0: Yeah. I mean, that lines up with my experience, you know, not just me, but like how I see other people around me using the internet.
1: So I think she tossed in there that uh, Amazon is the factory farm, of web data. Yeah, right. Right. They're they're making uh veal cutlets.
0: Oh. Uh, okay. Which leads us to Facebook.
1: Yeah, that actually makes sense. <laughs> uh have you heard of Facebook, Chris?
0: Yeah, I heard of it. Uh it's for college kids, right? It used to be. That's so- when
1: when I got on it, I <laughs> had an EDU address. <laughs> um so Facebook,
0: as we all know is a big social media company, but they do not just have social media as their platform. In fact, as Hill learned their business model is largely based around advertising. Uh, And they also own things like Instagram, WhatsApp, messenger, which for, for me, I keep thinking of messenger as the same thing, but apparently they've split it out as like a separate app at this point.
1: I will believe whatever you say about how Facebook works. And then there's the
0: Oculus Rift, which I don't think either of us are qualified to talk about. I wrote about uh, Oculus Rift like five years ago, but I've never used one. So I don't really know a ton about it other than that it's a virtual reality headset.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And then there's this thing called Facebook Pixel. Yeah. Have you ever had to deal with this? Yes. Um, And by deal with it, I mean I've recognized its effect.
0: Oh, I mean like in your work. Oh, no 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 no. So again because I do marketing for a living, um, you need to put Facebook pixel code on your own website gotcha. in order no, no, I've to I've never in, had that experience. Yeah. So they encourage you to do that because it will improve your advertising rates if you if you do that. So they say put a little bit of our code on your site and then we'll be able to better track and target the people who are... It's it's a very similar thing to the Wi-Fi thing I was talking about earlier.
1: Yeah. So I use um, Amazon Associates, the affiliate program, to uh, get that little piece of the pie. Right. One thing I don't do is I don't copy the full image link. So I don't put a pixel from Amazon on our web page mm. that then... Sort of charts to Amazon, how many people go to our website and, you know, other information. Mm-hmm. And because I don't do that, we don't make nearly as much money from the uh, transactions as we, quote Literally unquote, true. could. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Wait also, a minute, is that the
0: reason why we don't have 50,000 listeners? <laughs> <laughs>
1: It has nothing to do with listeners. No, it's the reason why Amazon's like, we'll give you two cents every time someone spends a (laughs) hundred dollars. So Hill says this.
0: She found out that the vast majority of Facebook requests from her devices were from her movements around the web, not through interacting with Facebook itself. Um, so it's embedded like and share buttons, Facebook analytics, Facebook ads and Facebook pixel. So, for instance, like if you went to if I had Facebook pixel embedded on my personal website so that I could better send ads out on Facebook to get people to buy my comics. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were boycotting Facebook, but you went to my site, you'd still be interacting with Facebook.
1: Yeah. So she says she's uh, seen the, the request from Facebook because they're being caught by her VPN. And then she can say, oh, this is all the things that happen, um, you know, behind behind the wizard's curtain. Uh, She said it was easy to not use Facebook. And essentially it is. If you don't want to use Facebook, you just don't. But it's very hard to, one, dodge the Facebook stuff that's out there. And two, she said totally, she said straight up, She was um, disconnected from her friends and family, Mm -hmm. and she felt weird about it. Yeah,
0: yeah. So uh, she specifically mentioned that she did this experiment the week that was Halloween through to the election that year. So last week of October going into the first week of November, um, she was, yeah, she felt disconnected because she couldn't see what her friends were dressing up as for Halloween. She couldn't
1: post what her kid had dressed up for Halloween. Yeah. And um, then the 2018 election, that was such yeah. a sort of powerful check for a lot of people. She couldn't uh, see it real time on Facebook. She mentioned later on too, she found out that a friend of hers
0: had a baby during that week and she didn't find out because she didn't see the Facebook post.
1: So, so I have to tell this story every time Facebook comes up in yeah, this kind of Do it. scenario. Uh, student ops run lost in the stacks, uh, when, uh, when they can. And Matthew, who is one of our board ops said, I didn't know that there was a party at my house because I don't have Facebook and the invite went out on Facebook and I didn't see it. So one day I came home from school and there was a party being prepared in my house and I asked my roommates what was happening and they said, Oh shit, right. You don't know. Wow. So they just
0: verbally don't talk to each other about things like that.
1: Party planning never happened outside of Facebook wow. in the house. Okay.
0: Huh. Um I will I will tell it from the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh in my last job I used Facebook a ton in order to promote the business that I was working for. Uh so I'm pretty familiar with Facebook ads, especially for promoting live events and for promoting things like podcasts, for instance. Um, and it is both incredibly complex and remarkably easy to spend a lot of money doing that. On, on They make it very easy to spend your money. The hard part is like really drilling down and figuring out how to best make use of the money. I, I'm I'm getting a real casino vibe from
1: what you're talking about
0: now. It is. It's kind of like that. Um, I am simultaneously repulsed by this and also impressed by it. They're targeting for Facebook and Instagram because you can, you can, uh, set up ads for both at the same time. It is laser precision. Like it, it's so good. Like I was able to set up ads and winnow down the audience in such a way that like, Within a day, my wife would go, oh, hey, I just saw the ad that you created on Facebook because she was within the target audience. Yeah.
1: I uh, I want to sum that up, but I have no good analogy. You it's, know, it's all a- my analogies are are uh,
0: <laughs> morally suspect. Let, let me just say this is like a person who's, who does marketing, right? Like, I think in some ways it's great to have access to a service that makes targeting your audience easier because that's what all communication boils down to essentially is like figuring out who the audience is for the thing that you're either persuading them to do or buy. Right. Um, And then cater the message to them specifically. So they feel like they're being spoken to. Um, That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's the things around it. Such as the surveillance
1: <laughs> that which become problematic. Us, yes, which brings us to Google. Yeah. Okay, so Google is a company. Uh, they have Android and Chrome operating systems and devices, Android phones, uh, Chromebooks, etc. They have Google Maps, which includes location tracking. Also, free services on the web like calendars. Docs, searching, web searching, which is where they got, you know, got their start. Uh, browsers, email services, trackers, and ad networks. They have fonts cached for uh, site speed. So there's a Google Fonts out there yeah, that do websites you remember, can pull from.
0: Like when you were first making websites, there were only like five fonts that you could use.
1: Oh, and- yeah. When I was first making websites, which really is sort of like the way that a kid makes a Valentine, mm-hmm. right? Uh I I took some things that existed and I glued them together. Uh, it was so simple because there was none of this. Mm -hmm. And as soon as, as soon as all of this extra infrastructure started being part of websites, like I can't do this anymore. I'm not good (laughs) enough. I don't have enough in my head to do this stuff.
0: But so let's, let's unpack this for a second. So when Hill was doing her experiment with Google, the actual text on sites wouldn't load even if they weren't Google sites because the fonts were hosted by Google
1: for the site's speed. Yeah. So these were all things that uh, she was blocked from. Uh, Chris, you have a Google sort of dependency, right? I do. Yeah. Like not only am I
0: an Android user, I, I mean, I use it for all of our work and my personal work. Uh, I remember when docs were first getting big and a bunch of comics creators were, like, really worried about the terms of service. And they yeah. were, like, getting lawyers to analyze it to make sure that Google wouldn't own the rights to the scripts that they were writing inside Google Docs. Um But, yeah, the the, the big thing that I use it for and that I'm hooked on, uh, I'm not a Spotify user. I use Google Music. And the reason why I use Google Music is, as far as I can tell, it's the only streaming music provider that allows you to upload your own music into their library. So you can stream it through the service anywhere. So for instance, like if I have like a seven inch that's super obscure, there were only like 200 copies made. I can rip the MP3s and then put those up into my Google library. Um, As I'm saying this and talking about the service that I use all the time, they're in the middle of potentially squashing it, is my understanding. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, they're like looking to replace it with something called YouTube Music, and that may or may not include this upload capacity.
1: That's right. We didn't even mention that Google owns YouTube. They own YouTube, yeah. So Hill said that uh, Google was the next hardest after Amazon to ditch. Uh, Google does cloud hosting, too. But uh, it was that Google had services everywhere. It was a lot like Amazon in that she wouldn't know that she was entering a Google space Mm -hmm. until stuff broke. She also kind of really went after Google. Um, Here's a long section that I want to read. Uh, Google is no stranger to scandals, but 2018 was a banner year. Google covered up the potential data exposure of half a million people who probably forgot they were still using Google+. Hey, if you have a Google Plus account, or you ever did, now's a good time to delete it, everybody. Just hit pause, get rid of that shit. Uh, It got caught trying to build a censored search engine for China. Its own employees resigned to protest Google helping the Pentagon build artificial intelligence. More employees walked out over the company paying exorbitant exit packages to executives accused of sexual misconduct. And privacy critics decried Google's insatiable appetite for data, from capturing location information in unexpected ways to capturing credit card transactions. <sighs> so. And that was the, in 2018. Yeah. If you sum up Hill's problem with the Google thing, it was I could stop using. Most of their services, but then I would have to pay for all this stuff that I do for free right now. Yeah, exactly. She pointed out that uh, Proton Mail, which was a, a a Gmail alternative, charges after you use 500 megabytes of data, which is 14 times less <laughs> than her free personal Gmail can handle.
0: Yeah, right. So there's exactly and this is something that she's going to come back to over and over again that like a lot of it boils down to we expect everything on the internet to be free and there the cost instead of uh you know having a monetary value to it has a social value to it
1: yeah which brings us to Microsoft and i say which brings us to Microsoft because i use the what is it? Office 365 suite, because that's Georgia Tech's mm. system. Mm-hmm. So all of my, <laughs> we always joke, all of my Google stuff is actually Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Like all of the email, uh, uh doc sharing, collaborative, um, spreadsheets. Yeah. Uh, calendar, you know, all this stuff, how we make our appointments. Mm-hmm. It's all through a Microsoft system because Mm -hmm. Microsoft supplies technology to business customers. If you're white-collar in America, there's probably something to do with Microsoft in your workflow. And if you're not, there usually is still Microsoft somewhere in your
0: day. The big thing that Hill seems to have found, because she kind of went into this thinking like, yeah, Microsoft, nobody uses that anymore, was that Microsoft doesn't Uh, target us as individuals it targets the businesses we work for so a huge institution like georgia tech is paying licensing fees for all of those apps to be used by all their employees um the the thing that i mentioned that i i mainly use microsoft for now is to play video games and to like watch tv (laughs) um but they also pointed out Microsoft is uh, used in a lot of point-of-service operating systems. So not just like those iPad kiosks that you check out on, but like other, um, like if you go to the grocery store or something like that, the computers that are running their scanners often run on Microsoft. So a lot of that stuff, again, business to business is is, yeah. is where they're at. Um, and then both Microsoft and Google are also involved in the cloud hosting business. And so they're taking up another, you know, chunk of the internet that Amazon isn't in that. They're hosting things that aren't necessarily
1: related to them. Yeah. But Hill said Amazon was inescapable on the web. Microsoft is unavoidable in real life. And let us not forget that Microsoft and Bill Gates were uh, monopoly villains for a little while that there was in the nineties oh a special time uh there was a um antitrust suit brought against them and gates likes to say that they were you know exonerated or vindicated that it you know they didn't take them apart but there were there was a lot of stuff that happened to microsoft and by microsoft because of that um i don't know if you call it a suit or an investigation or or what but because of that <laughs> legal action by 20 states and the Department of Justice. Well, Charlie, I've pulled it up here
0: in order to reference it. The inspiration for the movie Antitrust was what you just referenced. And uh, the movie Antitrust came out in 2001. Originally, it was called Conspiracy.com. <laughs> 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 and it was uh, it starred several people that you're familiar with. Are you ready? Uh, I find this delightful. Ryan Philippe, Rachel Lee Cook, and Claire Forlani, who we last talked about in the Basquiat oh, episode. Yes. Oh, and then yes. the... <laughs> you're not going to believe who played the Bill Gates villain. John Travolta. Tim Robbins.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah.
0: So that was... Bob Roberts went into tech. The, <laughs> the point is that, like... That was such a big news item
1: in the '90s that somebody in Hollywood was like, "Ooh, like we could, we could kind of do something with this, huh?" Yeah, they probably had to sex it up, though. I mean, I'm sure someone was in danger of being shot.
0: Yeah, no, like watch the trailer for it, and you'll, you'll definitely see Chris, how they sexed it up. I will not watch the trailer. Come on, you have seen
1: every movie that Claire Forlani is in except for this. I don't understand why you think I'm so hot for Claire Forlani. <laughs> which
0: brings us to Apple, which is Claire Forlani's favorite operating system.
1: Yeah, Apple. I have a tough time with this because I'm I'm totally in Apple's pocket. It's yeah. all Apple tech for me. You're the only person I know who has an Apple TV. Really? Yeah. What What do people use in Portland? Xboxes?
0: Uh, well, that's what we use. Um, other people, I uh, well, if we're gonna get into stacks. Google's... uh, What's the dongle thing they have? I can't remember what that's called,
1: but yeah. I think we've gone far enough on this. Yeah. So here's what Hill has to say about Apple. You can dodge Apple. They sell hardware. They don't sell user data or um, run ads at you. Unless you're buying their hardware. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tim Cook uh, is... Outspoken, saying that the data industrial complex is a problem. Um, we can, I guess, we can trust that in a way. Like, I don't think that there's some kind of like, you know, evil Apple behind, you know, the locked doors of the bunker that is actually doing all the stuff they say they aren't. But it, they're not a, <laughs> they're they're not a blameless company. It's not they're not special. It's just their particular way of. Of being ubiquitous. Yeah. It's physical. Each of these companies have found a niche that they fill
0: and that the other four don't necessarily compete with them in. And for Apple, it's the hardware. Um, And she points out too, you know, at this point in her research, she was only doing one company at a time. So she was able to use an Android phone for work the week that she was banning Apple. But then when you get to the big block where she bans all of them, there were literally no smartphones that she could use. The only phone that she could find that she could use was one of those old Nokia handhelds um, because they had been brought back onto the market. And then there was like a moment where she thought like maybe that would have been violating her her like self-imposed terms because there was something about Microsoft being involved in bringing
1: Nokia back. Yeah, if there's anything to really take from all of this, just broadly... It's that you're not avoiding products. Mm. Your behavior, your general behavior that has been normalized, you know, interacts with all of these companies constantly. I asked my students, what do you do to relax? And half of them say they just watch YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're not watching YouTube videos on a television, right? They're watching it on a device. Oh, and yeah that right there and probably how do these videos get to them probably through some kind of social media platform so basically all the bases are covered just by sitting down to relax and doing what used to be vegging out in front of the TV
0: yeah so we've we've now covered like each of her 5 weeks with each of the stacks uh then she did the big block and um she really you know said once she got past that week, which was very difficult, and she you know accounts for it in her piece, she said it actually made her realize how much tech had changed her life and that it was in ways that she regretted, and that she didn't even realize that she regretted them until she did this kind of
1: fasting yeah, the big block, all five companies at once was like a was like a shock to her system yeah um, this is <laughs> She says, many people I talked to about this experiment liken it to digital veganism. Um, a digital vegans reject certain technology services as unethical. They discriminate about the products they use, the data they consume and share, because information is power. And increasingly, a handful of companies seem to have it all. So her doing this in kind of a, you know, just I'm trying this out to see what happens. When she got to the part that was digital vegan Mm. I'm putting air quotes on that. I have a very hard time with digital vegan being a thing. Yeah. It's not a great term for what it means. Yeah. Uh, She found that completely unmanageable, but also eye opening. So we're going to come back to
0: that because a lot of what she revealed in the last piece is like the larger sort of thematic questions that involve you know understanding how these these services these hardware these companies these stacks uh interact with our daily lives right like that going back to what she said earlier it's very easy for someone to say like well just don't use facebook but when you actually think about what it what it would entail to to take all of these companies out of your life it in a lot of ways limits the opportunities that are available for you, and in that way, it becomes kind of class warfare.
1: So let us pursue the super context, you know, format. Let's talk about how this was distributed. Yeah, the company that um, Web published it.
0: So Hill was working for Gizmodo, and they published it and are currently hosting it. Um, we did an episode a couple of years ago about Gawker in relation to uh, just a lot of controversies that happened with that company. There have been more since then. Uh, I pulled a couple of notes for us to just real briefly skim over this to def- like get a picture of what the company she was working for was all about and where it's gone since then. Um, Gawker, which is the company that owned Gizmodo, was a blog originally, and it was founded by Nick Denton and Elizabeth Spears in 2003. And as we talked about in that episode, really their focus was on celebrities in the media industry, but it grew and it grew into like satellite blogs and Gizmodo was one of those. The trouble came, the real trouble came in in 2012 uh, when Gawker posted a clip from a sex tape of Hulk Hogan uh, and Hogan sued Gawker. Long story short, a jury awarded Hogan $115 million in compensatory damages and then another $25
1: million in punitive damages. And that destroyed Gawker. Mm -hmm. And then it was revealed that uh, Peter Thiel, the billionaire who had it out for Gawker. Because he had
0: been a victim of one of their gossip
1: reportings had actually funded the Hogan lawsuit and strategized it to make sure that the way that they were forced to pay would keep them from using their insurance. Mm -hmm.
0: So then in 2016, the summer of 2016, which is probably right before we did our Gawker episode, uh, they filed for bankruptcy and uh, it was all because of the, the lawsuit. Um, They ceased operations in August of that year the other blogs continued, but they were bought out by Univision. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, she was also a writer for Fusion. I don't, yeah. I don't know Hill's background or not, but Fusion is also part of Univision. So I wonder if there was some kind of an overlap there. Because Univision had Fusion, all the Gawker blogs, and The Onion for a while. After we did our episode, they sold all that shit. <laughs> and they sold it to a private equity firm called great Hill partners. And that was last year in 2019. Uh, since then, Gizmodo media and the onion have been slammed together into a new company that is called G slash O media. Uh, if you're like me and you are a real nerd and you pay attention to uh, scandals within publishing companies, there was one last year with, with G slash O media. Um, The leadership there, they basically, uh, were under a lot of criticism from the employees. Uh, there was a, there were complaints about, uh, their relationships with advertisers, how much diversity they had, and that the, uh, the leadership there was suppressing the kind of stuff they would report on.
1: Um, this is the craziest thing. Yeah. So October, 2019 deadspin, which was the sports blog.
0: Deadspin was where all this really came out of. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, Gawker Media was made up of Jezebel, io9, Deadspin, Kotaku, Gizmodo, Lifehacker, and Jalopnik. Deadspin, um, its editor and chief Barry Pacheski, was fired because he refused to adhere to a directive that the site stick to sports. And that was from Geo's media's leadership. And once he was fired deadspin quit in protest like
0: all of their staff were like fine fuck this and they resigned
1: because the stick to sports bit was like hey hey don't talk about politics don't talk about other stuff why Mm -hmm. don't you um, back off on your opinions stick to sports um and so uh
0: one thing that we we kind of glossed over is that in between all of this stuff happening the people who worked for g slash o media were unionized and so they were they were somewhat protected. So in January of this year, so a month ago as we're recording this, the GMG union announced that they had a vote of no confidence in the CEO of GeoMedia, Jim Spanfeller, and they said among other issues that he lacked willingness to negotiate for the functional editorial independence protection of the staff there.
1: I, um... I always end up in a place where I just think so. Everything is terrible. Yeah. And so this is
0: important to take cashmere Hills piece into account because she wrote and published this piece somewhere within Univision selling Gizmodo to Great Hill partners because uh, her piece was published in 2019. And that was when the sale went through and not for nothing She works for the New York times now. So I wouldn't be surprised if all this drama that was going on there with not only unions, but the CEO basically saying, Hey, you can or cannot publish these kinds of stories, uh, led to her and many others saying, fine, fuck
1: this. I'll go work somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, before we hit the break, let us give credit to everyone who was involved in the goodbye big five series. Kashmir Hill was the reporter, and her family also suffered through the experiment. Uh, her video producer was Myra Iqbal. The editors were Andrew Kutz, Tim Marchman, and Kelly Bordet. And the video team was Daniel Steinberg, Ben Reninga, and Santiago Garcia.
0: So Charlie, now that we're like really digging deep down into this, I bet money that Patreon is hosted by either AWS or uh, Google or Microsoft's cloud hosting.
1: Yes. It's got to be. And here's the moment where you have to say, am I going to do the best I can in the world that I'm in, or am I going to insist on hating all of it because it's not ideal? Yeah. And for me, I'm just going to balance out the fact that we are a Patreon-supported podcast and the group of people that support us through Patreon are amazing and have made me a better person and the podcast a better podcast. So it's fine if Google gets their cut or Amazon gets their cut for as long as we have to put up with it.
0: I think you're right. And if it wasn't for that community helping us out, we we wouldn't be able to
1: do this show. And if it wasn't for the stacks, we wouldn't be able to do this show either. Straight up, dude. We talk about yeah. it in the episode. We use all the tools we're not actually trying to say it's all bad we're just trying to yeah. say you should understand the information world we all live in just a little bit better well if you want to
0: understand how super context is going to work a little bit better here's the plan through may of 2020 your support as patrons will help us pay our hosting fees it'll cover our expenses for media artifacts and it will maintain our recording setup for our better production. When we cease production in May of 2020 of regular episodes, Patreon support will continue, but what it will do is keep the public RSS feed alive and active and free so that people can still discover the show and dig into the archives. So essentially, it's the stacks all over again. We will give you free content and they will get your information and data. And ours.
1: You'll know exactly who's making it, though. We will continue to do a mini a month for the patrons, and also everything that we've created up to this point will be available to anybody who provides Patreon support after May 2020.
0: But for the next couple months, while we're still in regular Patreon mode, rewards are going to continue to include access to outtakes and blooper reels, Biweekly weekly bonus mini episodes, and our monthly Super King Context episode. This month, we're doing an episode on Silver Bullet.
1: You mean the calendar?
0: The calendar. The Bernie Writes and drawn calendar
1: that was somehow turned into a movie that is great. One thing we do for everybody, and this is the spot we do it in, is we say thank you for your support. And we have new patrons, people... Even though we're going to end regular production, people are still diving in on this train. Thank you so much. I know that's a completely mixed metaphor, but fuck it. Thank you to John Klima. And hey, Roar Vinland is back for being patrons of Super Context. Thank you also to Alex Layard,
0: Alice Florence, Ambrose Allen, Amit Doshi, Andy Riggs, B.B. Schwells, Bennett Callahan, Beth Barnett, Beth Gilmore, Billy Whitehouse, Bing Bong Man, Brandon Daniels, and Brian Chovanich
1: And thank you Caroline Zoids, Chris Marlton, Cliff Landis, Coco, Dave Jordan, Dave Wachter, Elijah Tilstra, Evan Mapstone, Fred Rasco, Gregory C. Giordano, Ira James, Udeskin, Jason Puckett, Jim Taylor, Jess Staten, John Pheasant, Joseph Aleo, and Juan
0: Patton. Thank you also to Junta Slash Cult, Calvin Ellis, Carmela Padovich, Kate Sharon, Kevin Wetter, Christian Hirvula, Lee Fowler, Lokesh Dakar, Luigi Oswego, Melinda Hale, Miriam Meany, Misha Moon,
1: and Nathan Weatherford. Chris, this list is so long. I know, Thank it's getting longer. Thank you, Nick longer. Sage, Patrick Malka, Pete Bow, Philip, who does have a last name, R.M. Rhodes, it's pronounced Matt, Reign It In, Matt and Rachel, the podcast, Rob Sloan, Robert Negoesco, Roman Marichik, Romantic Placebo, Ron Billado, Ross Luallen, Ryan O'Neill, Sari Nichols, Seth Friedman, Simon Workman, Tara Mishak, Thomas Tremberger, Veal Height, and Whitney Buchanan. Thank you, all of you. And if you want to
0: continue to have your data tracked and mined for information so we can sell
1: things to you, go ahead and visit us at Patreon.com/supercontext. Don't lie to people. We're never going to sell anything. And we're back. Uh, So, oftentimes, we do numbers of, like, sales, uh, box office, whatever. We're talking about an article right now. So, consumption, Chris has found some numbers for views of the series.
0: Yeah, so uh, Gizmodo and all those G slash O Media blogs are still hosted on a platform that I think used to be called Kinja. I don't know if it's still called Kinja. Um, but it purports to show you how popular the articles are. And it, it, it was, if you go back to our Gawker episode, uh, it was Nick Denton's idea that they were basically going to create a Facebook competitor. It was going to be like their social media platform.
1: Didn't. So work out how way. big is the grain of salt? You should <laughs> take these numbers with.
0: well, that's kind of what I'm wondering is like, how accurate are these? Um, but they self report. So when you look at each article, it tells you how many views they've gotten so uh, again this is like an important analytical distinction a view is different from how many people have looked at it right like charlie could view the page five times but charlie's only the one human being
1: right so there's this sort of relative popularity of each of the parts and then sort of an overall how many people how many times did people refer back to these pieces.
0: Yeah. The thing I'm the most fascinated by is not not necessarily how high or low the numbers are, but how they relate to each other, right? Which shows you how interested or disinterested
1: right. uh, the, the world is in how some of these services operate. So let's start with um, five hundred and sixty three thousand views for the whole set of articles and videos. Uh, it, I don't know if it was tracking the videos, so the way that their
0: site is set up is that the video is embedded at the top of each of the articles, but they right, also okay. have
1: the videos inside Facebook and YouTube players. Yeah, yeah. So, 563,000 views for the whole series. The high numbers are the Google portion... Had 729,000 views. So more people watched the thing about Google
0: or read about Google than cared about the entire project overall. Yeah. Uh,
1: For Amazon, 285,000 views. Apple, 134,000 views. Which then was followed by Facebook, less than 100,000 views. Microsoft, even less than 100,000 views seemingly you know how do i cut google out of my life or what happens when i stop using right. google yeah that you would go type people. in what should yeah. i do and it this seems to show <laughs> us that people are far
0: more worried about google and amazon than they are facebook or microsoft
1: maybe people feel more lost you can just delete facebook right yeah sure like you did but you still have facebook pixel tracking you everywhere yes uh, but I don't know that until someone points it out. <laughs> but I do know I'm fucking using Google all the goddamn time. That's you true. Know? Yeah. Or Amazon. I, I need to detach myself from Amazon. How did you do it? Mm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then Microsoft being the least popular portion of this, I think, bears out what Hill observed, which is that people aren't thinking about how much Microsoft is part of their life. Yeah. It's so baked into your daily practice. That when you think about what am and I doing online? And somewhat out of your control,
0: right? Yeah. Like, like if you, for instance, were like, I'm boycotting Microsoft, you couldn't go to your employer and say, sorry, I have a moral objection to using this software. Oh, I could do that. But the result would not be fun. Right. Um, I, this reminds me of something Sterling said in one of those South by speeches, which was that he's waiting for the stacks to turn on each other and, and devour one of their own. And he said, it looks like it'll be Microsoft, but who knows? And the thing for me is like, maybe it will be Microsoft, but what we've seen over and over again is that these always come in sets of five. And so I wonder (laughs) if Microsoft were to be devoured, what would be the fifth one that would then replace Microsoft?
1: Spotify. Maybe Spotify. Yeah. You know what? That, That does bring something up for me. As we uh, lead into the sort of the identities, the themes that are are postulated by these articles, mm-hmm. I do feel a little bit lost. I can joke, oh, Spotify would be the next, you know, uh, the next company, then it'll all be web-based. But also, I don't know that I understand exactly what I'm saying when I say that. It yeah. feels that way. It feels like, oh, yeah, Spotify is the next big contender but maybe it's Netflix I should be talking about, right? Um, but I don't have the knowledge as a consumer of how those companies are structuring themselves. I have to follow the lead of folks like Bruce Sterling or Cashmere Hill to kind of give me some more information because I certainly don't trust the company's presentation of, of their, uh, their ubiquity. Yeah, their surveillance.
0: I mean, this gets back to, uh, you know, we talked about at the top of the show, but like the mission of why we're doing this and why we think an episode like this is relevant to super context is like this is part of being media literate is understanding the business operations behind what is presented to you as like these are your options for platforms for ultimately consuming stories like it all comes down to like hey, how do you want to watch your story on TV? Well, it's going to be through one of these five stacks. How do you want to listen to your story on a podcast? How do you want to make your own story? Well, you're going to have to use one of them to do that too. Yeah.
1: Okay. So let's talk about what this article seems to, or this set of articles seems to really bring out of how we think of ourselves in the world right now. And the first thing to talk about is that core of what hill described as the the contradiction of oh well if you don't want to use this company don't use it vote mm. with your dollars make your choices yeah but then realizing that that doesn't seem like a possibility unless you are very rich <laughs> or have a very distinct lifestyle that allows you to make choices yeah on everything and and use alternates that are much more expensive and uh, much more inconvenient.
0: Yeah. I think like there's sort of two ways to react to the information that Hill presented, right? One is maybe kind of like that student that you had and be like, well, you know, the, the market will sort it out. It's fine. Like, like this stuff will all get sorted out in the end based on what consumers preferences are. Um, And that's the nature of capitalism. And that's the best possible way for us to regulate society. The other argument is more along the line of Hills, uh, which is the government should intercede and the government should create regulation that restricts these companies in their actions and how they
1: interact with us. And that is like the core. I mean, fuck, that's the argument we're having right now. Uh, going into the presidential election, you think I I do, and I mean not not about the tech itself, but yeah. um, when when there's discussion of oh no the you know specter of socialism <laughs> you yeah know, versus come on America will never be socialist yeah you're talking about letting the market sort it out versus government regulation, but we've always had some kind of I mean even libertarians are saying government should enforce contracts between citizens, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And those contracts have to be guided by rule of law. So when Hill refers to Khan, who wrote the academic article, and points out that the stacks have been using, they've been using the data that their users essentially give to them, you know, that they sell to them in exchange for services. They've been using that data kind of like monopolies, Mm -hmm. and they have engaged in anti-competitive tactics that should be, if not illegal, should be investigated, but everyone is cool with it, generally, because it's convenient to individuals and it reduces immediate costs to consumers. Right. Consumers are basically not
0: complaining about it. So even though it's technically against the law, they're not getting involved um and also I think she she somewhat articulates this later. The government doesn't have a framework for understanding stacks. It has a framework for understanding companies and antitrust with companies, but this is beyond that at this point. And and the ways in which these five companies have become embedded in our our lives, it's somewhat outside of their scope of understanding. Yeah,
1: if if you are asking the market to or free market forces to fix problems you can't um ask it to do that when things are being given away you know yeah. the the free market is not uh, happening when companies are saying uh sign up for these services you can have them for free it's incredibly convenient and not then sort of explicitly discussing the externalities that come with those services. Yeah. She even says it an uncomfortable idea. I keep coming up against this week. You know, the week of her blocking stuff is that if we want to get away from monopolies and surveillance economies, we might need to rethink the assumption that everything on the internet should be free. So let's pause and think about what she means here for a second. Right? So like, The
0: currency that these companies are getting right now is information. We can call it data, but it's basically information, right? It's information about us as individuals and how uh, we can be targeted to sell things. What she's saying is that if we're going to regulate that, then those companies would subsequently say, well, we can't afford to have these services anymore. We need to make money somehow. So you're going to have to pay us like You would have to pay a subscription to use Google Docs every month. Yeah. Or uh, your Amazon prices would be the same
1: as they would be if you went down to Powell's. And can you imagine if Google was able to say, we must, um, you know, sunset Google Docs because the government is regulating us. Mm -hmm. Shit would catch on fire. Well, I mean we're a little bit beyond
0: this now, given where we're at in the primary cycle. But like, you remember a couple of weeks ago when Elizabeth Warren was like shooting her mouth off about how she was going to regulate the big five um. and a bunch of the CEOs were like, Whoa, hold up lady. What do you, who the fuck do you think you are? You know? And, yeah. and, and it's suddenly Gates say,
1: he said, um, I don't mind the idea of paying, you know, a few percent more in taxes, but if you're going to start, you know, doing 20, 25% more. I'm like, Hey, hold on a second. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, so
0: it's, it suddenly got very interesting, right? Because all those people were like, Oh, hell yeah. We're on the side with the Democrats. We got to get rid of this guy. And the minute it became about the bottom dollar, they were like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. Hold on.
1: (laughs) And what is the thing that people are willing to pay for privacy?
0: I don't know. Are they? Cause they're yeah, certainly not I mean, paying for it right now. <laughs> well, no, this is what Hill
1: Hill talks about this too. She yeah. says, um, you know, if the, the consumer is the product, you know, and we expect everything on the web to be free, uh, privacy becomes a luxury good. Mm-hmm. She talks about how Apple, she could avoid Apple very easily. The more expensive hardware, because, that's what it presents itself as. It's like, like a She can like only do that because system. she's
0: middle or upper class. Right. Like imagine you're working a minimum wage job and you have, you probably have like a cheap smartphone, but it is either an iPhone or an Android. You don't really have the option of saying like, oh, I'm going to boycott these systems. Um, I don't know if it's the same way for you at tech, but uh, let me run something past you. When I was working at Georgia State, a, a lot of the students there uh, came from lower class communities and didn't have a ton of money. And they were on the um, the lottery system in Georgia yeah. that paid for their tuition. Um, one of the things that we found was that like a huge majority of the students didn't own computers or use computers. They only used smartphones. Yeah. So the only time they came to the library was when they needed to type a paper because they couldn't, I mean they could, but it was easier than typing it out on their phone. Um, The rest of the time they were doing everything through a mobile device.
1: Which meant that all of their actions were recorded in some way.
0: And it would be much harder for them to say, oh, I'm going to take a moral stand. Fuck Apple and fuck Android. I'll go get whatever. You know, there are uh, phones out there that you can get that are like thousands of dollars that are i don't know the like black box phones that only and then, yeah
1: this is the apple thing like i bought a amazon fire tablet mm-hmm. to um to use with uh, the with wireless speakers and it cost me 49 bucks versus the ipad pro that the library bought for a presentation thing mm-hmm. that i think was 1200 dollars at the time yeah that sounds right uh, So the Apple, we don't sell your data markup is something like, you know, a hundred times. And on top of that, that fire tablet sucks. It is a piece of shit, man. You know, I got what I paid for. So the, the idea that if you're poor, if you are unable to afford what is privacy, the luxury good that Hill identifies then you're selling your your data for services that aren't even as good as what people who are selling their data but with fancier devices mm-hmm. are
0: getting. So uh, Daniel Kahn Gilmore is one of the people that she turned to for some more perspective on this. He works for the ACLU and... I believe uh, she identified him as a digital vegan. And he said to her, uh, we need to think of this actually as a collective action problem, similar to the way that we think about the environment. Society is structured so that a lot of the people are trapped. Uh, Maybe you have to fill out your timesheet right, for your job. The only app that's available to fill out that timesheet is either on an iPhone or an Android. So you have to have one of those devices so that you can get paid.
1: And that's not a hypothetical. Like, that's a thing that happens. Sure. And and so you end up in a place where you're now sort of demanding that people take part in certain technology solutions. And by that, I mean they are required to use products of the stacks to live. Because that's cheaper for companies.
0: Well, let's put it this way. Um, you know, this will be where everybody can call me Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, no one is going to call you. Imagine that you, you 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 fully go off the the grid of the stacks, right? You're not using any of the five companies. You're not interacting them, with them at all. Um, you do have access to the internet or whatever, but you're only accessing parts of it because a huge chunk of it is hosted by these five companies. Um, you would, you wouldn't have access to the same opportunities as the rest of people in society. And most of the opportunities that lead to middle-class or upper-class economies require that you participate
1: in these systems. Yeah. And Gilmore and other folks Want laws to be passed that create some version of, um, the post office, the mail system and the phone system for these technologies. Something that requires the companies to allow people to transfer, transfer numbers and email addresses to use things that are interoperable, mm-hmm. you know, and to not be limited. I, I say something like, um, the postal service because. If you have an address, a physical address that the post office recognizes, they deliver there. Even if it's a very difficult delivery, those Amazon trucks and other private companies can say, we don't deliver to this thing. Mm-hmm. We're out. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll have to use a different um, service. And so Gilmore wants... So it becomes a question of rights. Yeah. Um, rights to participate, rights to receive information. Mm-hmm gilmore as hill says doesn't want um companies broken up he's not saying oh they shouldn't make enough make all that money he's saying we need to protect the people who use this from being forced into uh consumer decisions
0: yeah and so hill points out that it's it's hard for us to sort, somewhat wrap our heads around this the government can't even wrap their heads around it Essentially, this is the same thing as the government building roads or uh, establishing transportation systems or airports in major cities or overseeing the energy industry like uh, that.
1: Tennessee is, Valley Authority. All right. That's the point
0: that we're at with this stuff right now. Um, it would be like saying, uh, let me see if this analogy works. Maybe it won't. Uh, It would be like uh, somebody lives on a farm that is uh, inaccessible by paved roads and saying to them, well, if you wanted to get those better jobs, you would have a paved road. And they would say, well, we can't afford to pay for the road to be
1: paved. Well, yeah. And then they would say, well, if you let us set up this radar station on your farm, we'll build you a paved road (laughs) so we can get to the radar station. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> somewhat yeah you know he'll get something wrong in this article okay um, or in this in the sort of discussion around the article uh, she suggests that the inter- internet has been mostly built by private companies that they control the um the metaphorical roads in our analogy of like the interstate system built by the government so that the economy can work so that there's um uh, you know an emergency airplane landing Uh, system in place in case of war and so that there's freedom of movement. That's not true. It was built by Al Gore. The roads were not built. The internet roads were not built by private companies. It's the defense industry. It was defense money. Yeah, Yeah. It was government money. Yeah. But the way that we use the internet is being defined by these private companies. Yeah. It didn't used to. But now it is. I always
0: remember this is somewhat irrelevant now. It's, it's been like 15 years. But uh, a friend of mine got his Ph.D. in um, nanotechnology engineering from MIT. He's a real smart guy. And uh, we were talking about 15 years ago. And he said, yeah, like all of the things that drop down and are available to us as consumers are initially developed through defense money. And the big example that he used was GPS. At the time, we didn't have GPS in our phones. Um, but he was saying, like, so, uh, you know, the military has access to GPS that's accurate within five feet. But uh, if you get one of those GPS devices for your car, it's only accurate within, like, 30 feet or something like that right and then lo and behold here we are 15 years later and we're all carrying gps devices in our pockets that are accurate to within probably one foot i would guess right don't you mean targeting beacons targeting beacons yeah (laughs) but this is similar (laughs) right is that like the infrastructure was developed through public funding and then subsequently the benefits of that infrastructure are being used by private
1: commercial entities. Yeah. And uh, that leads us into the next thing, convenience versus privacy, because a way to think about uh, that Hill presents, a way to think about our convenience, our privacy, and our understanding of the costs is that this way of doing things that is being presented to us by companies are like, Hey, we've got this new toy, this new technology, and we can do this with it. Why don't you use it? Then we'll take the data of how you use it and we'll sell it. Starts to feel like, Oh, this is how we, this is how we work on the internet. Now, this is Mm -hmm. what we do. And, uh, she points out you can, um, pay for a service and still find that your data is being sold. You know, the assumption that Oh, if I turn into a, uh, turn into a paying customer, there's a change in how it's handled. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, the, the infrastructure, the tools are still being used systematically to create value, to generate wealth, even though there's the idea that it was built to benefit the society at large. And if you pay enough, you should get a different version of that, a private version of that.
0: Right. Like, I mean, think think about, I don't know what your phone plan is, but she points out here, like, let's say you're paying $100 a year for your phone plan, right? And that it, usually in some respects, you're paying toward the device that you are renting. That's right. You you're you've bought
1: the thing, you le- you're leasing the phone and yeah. you're paying for the
0: air, and, and she points out, even at that point, they're still packaging up your data and selling it. Um, and then John Donovan, who wrote about this, I believe for The Guardian, points this out. He says, look, privacy is a huge concern. The internet behemoths know a lot about you. They know if you spend any time online at all. They know where you bank. They know where you shop, what you like, what your politics are, who's on your friend list. They know where I bought my
1: bed. Yeah. <laughs> and to a lot of people, Donovan says, that doesn't matter. Who cares? Mm-hmm. I'm not doing anything that I'm ashamed of. I don't really give a shit if people are being tracked.
0: And it, but, you and I were talking off off air. Yeah. I am one of those people. Like yeah. I am. I am for privacy. I am. I'm on team privacy. But there is a part of me that's just like, eh, whatever. I don't care if they know what bet I have or or whatever my deepest right. secrets are.
1: But then Jenny Gebhardt of the Electronic Frontier Foundation says to you, Chris, to yeah, you. This is the part that's concerning. You're not worried that the government is coming after you, but they may be coming after journalists and dissidents and community organizers who we all need. Mm-hmm. So you entering into this clusterfuck of technology and surveillance and data and information and privacy, not giving a shit, sets up all of these interactions where the tech companies don't have to give a shit either. Right. And then that is what catches the people who maybe do need to stay secret, who do have things that not ashamed of, but do have things that need to be kept private Mm -hmm. in order for, um, a a civil democracy to work instead of being directed by, um, corporate interests.
0: Yeah, Hill points out, she says, these tech giants, they laid down a basic infrastructure for our data to be trafficked. And what they get us to do is to put our information into public profiles, to carry the devices, to download the apps that make these things into tracking devices. Again, it's about information and data.
1: Yeah. And then if you're a person who doesn't want to do that, you miss out on a certain kind of participation. Mm Mm-hmm. In you civil don't know society. when your
0: friend had a baby or, or what. if there's
1: a party at your house.
0: Yeah. Um, and then she points out there is an idea in the air of regulation in American politics, at least. There's, it seems like it's even more so in European politics. And I, I mentioned Elizabeth Warren already. She's throwing stuff like this around. I'm, I'm sure that there is also fear uh, that, uh, the quote unquote socialist candidates will, you know, impose some kind of regulatory order on these tech giants. Um, and Hill ends by saying, suddenly these companies have become targets of anger and they're, we're angry at them because they're assisting in the spread of propaganda and misinformation. They're making us dangerously dependent on their services and they're turning our personal information into currency. For a surveillance economy, the world is flawed. Whether it's fair or not, the tech titans are increasingly being blamed for why the world is flawed. The way you and I started this episode, Charlie, was a very kind of default. Yeah, we know that these (laughs) these five companies are doing this. Uh, What are we gonna do about it? What you know? I don't think there's anybody out there that's like. Oh, I fucking love Facebook. I love everything about it. I love what they're doing.
1: Keep it up. I hear what you're saying, but I am sure there are people who do think that, who think that Facebook is awesome. Probably, there are people probably who love there. these products. There are people who love how things work. Here's the thing. If I could follow through on what I feel like I need to do, which is uh, disrupt this infrastructure and detach from it. Yeah. The first thing I would have to do Is uh, stop doing this podcast with you. Right. And, you know, like, I would have to eject myself from so much that is standard. Mm -hmm. So much that is normalized in my life right now. And very slowly, there's a fucking Amazon, you know, voice assistant, an Echo Mm -hmm. in my house. And do you know why it's in my house? Because when my wife said, oh, maybe we could get one of those, I was embarrassed by the fury and disgust that was coming up in my body. And so I didn't say, are you out of your fucking mind? I said, oh, that's not exactly how I'd like to run the house. But I mean, if you want to try it out, that's okay.
0: (laughs) The other day while we were recording an episode, your wife was in the background and I heard her be like, "Uh, Alexa, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, (laughs) what? And then I remembered you got the yeah. echo.
1: Yeah, it it's in there.
0: I I think she turned had him turn the lights on or something.
1: And you know what you saying the name and a couple things something's happening in someone's house oh, somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a
0: problem we ran into on public radio as well. Every time you mention it it will theoretically trigger it. Um so it feels kind of hopeless, right? Because like you get to the end of this and you're like, well, it doesn't seem like our government is going to do anything unless there's radical change. Um, they don't, it's like Sterling to find them. They're failed States. They literally don't know how to contemplate this much less regulate it. Um, and half of them are in bed with these companies anyways, like literally like they'll leave politics and go work at these companies or people will leave these companies and go work in politics. Uh, that's half of what Zuboff's book is about is my understanding. (laughs) Um, but, but then you say, like, well, you know, I can't, I can't go fully whole hog off of this. I can't go cold turkey. Let me use that metaphor, which is probably yeah. more apt. Uh, and Hill turns back to, uh, Gebhardt and Gebhardt says, look, yeah, for the average person, it's almost impossible to fully quit on these five companies. The practical lesson that you should take away and this is more in line with super context is there's a lot of opportunities to scale back and there's opportunities to think about, to think critically about like how you're using the thing and what, what you're trading for the, the ability to use these devices or the software that's on them. Um, Gebhardt says there are a lot of opportunities to think about exactly where you intersect with the different companies and then scale it back where it makes sense for you as an individual. Uh, You know where it makes sense to me. You've been listening to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media.
1: How it's made and how it informs our everyday culture. Our theme music
0: is Human Factor by Mile Marker.
1: And right now you're listening to Drive
0: Fast by Three Chain Links. Show notes and all our past episodes are available at supercontextpodcast.libson.com.
1: You can email the show at supercontextpodcast at gmail.com to tell us what you like, what you don't like, and to suggest topics for future shows.
0: And I'm available on Twitter as at Christian Sager.
1: And I'm there at Bennett Radio. Two N's, two T's.